Thank you. Fitting for our text is before us. We are in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, as you see there on your handout. And you may remember that last week we, we concluded with a uh, description of the, the, the revelation of God given to the, the least among us. The, not to the wise and prudent, Luke has written, but to the children. He has revealed these things to babes. And on the heels of that, we run into this discussion between one who is among the wise and prudent of ancient Israel, a lawyer, as he asks a question of Jesus, and Jesus speaks the parable of the Good Samaritan. So give ear to God's Word as it begins in verse 25 of chapter 10. It reads, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's a text that really doesn't need an introduction, especially in this room. Most of you, if not all of you, have read it multiple times, have heard it multiple times. Even from childhood, you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. It is, it is one, a story that is so common to us that, that the phrase Good Samaritan is entered into our popular culture. We all know what a Good Samaritan is and we all know how to utilize that phrase Good Samaritan to describe a neighbor or a fellow citizen. The fireman who is willing to risk his life to go in and save someone from a burning building we call a Good Samaritan. Or the man who down the street mows the the elderly person's yard free of charge and regularly we look at him and see him doing that deed and say, ah, a good Samaritan. But I fear that such familiarity with the text, with the story, does us a disservice in the long run. It renders us in some ways deaf to the parable. We, We can't actually see it as it is. We become blind to the thing itself. We miss hearing Jesus speak to us because we think we already know what Jesus says. 
It's something like children who get so used to hearing their parents speak to them about certain things that they just shut off and no longer hear the words that come out of their mouths. Famously given to us in Charlie Brown's version of the teacher with her wah, 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 wah. And so this parable could become something like that to us. And of course, we don't want that to happen. And so I think it's important for us, I think it's necessary for us to come to this text and actually pay attention, to open our ears, to give heed to what actually is being said, to hear it again together afresh. For our Lord, I think, would teach us what it means to love our neighbor. Or to put it in other words, He would teach you and I what it means to be in truth a good Samaritan. And so, in order to do that, let's first look at who this parable is for. Who does he speak it to? This will be our first point. Behold, he says, or the text says, behold, a lawyer. A lawyer. We know him by what he does. Verse 25, we see what he does. He, he is one who stands up to put Jesus to the test. And this ought not to surprise us, of course, that's what lawyers do. They, they test people. By the law, they either accuse or excuse someone. But first, in order to do that work, they have to examine them, do they not? They have to use their standard to, to figure out what side of the law the person falls on. They must test them. And that's exactly what this lawyer is doing here with his opening questioning question. He's, he's as it says, testing Jesus. Teacher. It's testing, searching question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's as if he's asking, how do you read the law concerning me and my standing? And Jesus, as Jesus so often does, responds to the question with another question. One of his own. He says to him, what is written in the law? And if you listen to it, you might note that there is something of a catechetical note or tone to that. This is a short, succinct question that expects a very particular answer. It's the kind of question that any Jewish boy raised in a local synagogue would quickly know the answer to. He might rattle it off before he even thinks of what the answer is. And so he's familiar with it. But the question is not only just the one that has the pat wrote answer, it is also searching for he presses the law to confess, the lawyer to confess the very standard that he means to test Jesus by. You're here to test me. Well, what are you testing me by? What is this law you lawyer are using? Lawyer, what is your standard? And note too that he she seems to give some measure of respect to the lawyer. For he says, how do you read it? He asks for more than just childlike parroting of the answer to the catechetical question. He asks him to use his studied knowledge as a lawyer to tell him what he thinks is the meaning. How does he read this, this law, this standard? And without any hint of hesitation in the text, the lawyer goes on and quotes Moses. He recites something he probably recited every single day of his life as long as he could remember reciting it. In the morning, rising and touching it on the doorpost as he walked through the house. You shall love the Lord your God, verse 27, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he adds 
as one learned in these things, the other part that he knows needs to be added to it, having studied carefully the law. He quotes Leviticus 19.18, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, hearing that, commends him. He says in verse 28, you have answered correctly. You're right. And with that answer and the question prior to it, notice how the tables have turned. He who came to test Jesus is now on the other side being questioned. Not in a testing way, but as a teacher would teach someone something. Jesus is speaking to a man of authority and learning who was testing him, and now he is the one with the authority speaking to him. And this kind of thing happens so much in our Bibles that we almost forget how amazing it is that he's able to do this all the time. He is approached by someone that should have all the authority and all the learning and has power over him, and he's unshaken. And in his conversation with him, somehow he takes the place of authority and begins to be the one questioning and examining. There is something revealed about the nature of our Lord that his very presence bears an authority that wins the, the room, we might say. And I think we ought to pause just momentarily to notice that and marvel where it seemed the lawyer was in charge. It is now he, the Lord, that is in charge. The lawyer does not commend him, but he now is the one commending, grading, you might say, the lawyer. And now from this place of authority, notice he adds one last thing. Do that. Do this and live. Interestingly, he meets the lawyer on his own ground. The lawyer, having quoted from a place in Deuteronomy the, 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 the loving of the Lord his God with all heart and mind and soul and strength, adds to it a, a verse from Leviticus. And then Jesus, when he answers him, adds another verse of Leviticus. Paraphrasing Leviticus 18.5, he says, You shall keep my statutes and my rules, for if a person does them, he shall live by them. Jesus says, do this and live. Paraphrasing that verse which ends with the words, I am the Lord. He wishes to reason with him concerning his reading of the law. You see, he meets him in the very place where he adds to it his study, his learning, his knowledge, and he meets him in that place and and quotes from that book itself. He calls him to it, but not as a lawyer, but instead as a man. As a man under the law. He would have him read it as one under it and not over it, as one controlled by it, not in control of it, as one wielded by it and not one who wields it. And then verse 29, though, he, desiring to justify himself, a legal term, the lawyer refusing to do anything or be anything but a lawyer in relation to the law and this discussion with Jesus, even though he's lost the place of authority, he still wants to claim the place of authority. He says to him, who is, who is my neighbor, Jesus? He would have, in place of a call to bow in submission to the law, he would have more law. More law. Longer definition of my neighbor. A, a more thorough list. Like, like the, you know, the list of all the unclean animals in, in, the, in the Scriptures. I want, I want a list of who my neighbor is. And so that he might obey it and continue to stand before this law. He does not bow, you see, to the law's commands. He does not submit to the requirement of the law. He argues from a, on a point of clarity, desiring clarity. He would interpret the law to fit himself, 
to see whether or not he can in some way measure up to it, faced with the possibility of guilt and conviction before the law, he would manipulate the law as one over it to justify himself. That's what's happening. And then we all have an idea of who this guy is, don't we? We've all seen the coloring pages with the picture of the, the Jewish lawyer. That we've all encountered in some way a, a movie scene where the Jewish guy with his religious garb is standing there, stern-faced, and talking to Jesus. He is, by all accounts, the bad guy. He's the one that is the enemy. But what we miss is that he is you. He is you and I. We, looking at Him, see ourselves, all of us are by nature like Him, lawyers. We make use of the law, as He does, to justify ourselves. Just think about it. When you feel affronted, how well equipped you are to assemble a list and prepare a case to prosecute the one who has accused you of wrongdoing. we, We all are very good about creating a list of things that have come against us, a list of accusations against those who have harmed us. And we have it ready at hand to prepare it and to present it to show that they are wrong and we are right. And not only are we adept at prosecuting a case against someone we think has done us wrong, we are even more equipped and ready to prepare a list of the ways that we are right when we are confronted with things that we have done wrong to defend ourselves, to prepare a defense. Not only do we prosecute cases well, we are well equipped and well able to defend ourselves at any cost. And just to bring that home, this natural tendency to do such things, just think about it in terms of your own Christian calling. When you're called to go and evangelize, what's the first thing you think in your head? Oh, I should get up and go evangelize. Or do you think, well, what does that mean exactly, evangelize? And how might you mean, what, what do I need to do to get that accomplished? Or when you're called to prayer, what's the first thing you think? Well, I should go pray. Or do you say, what do you mean by prayer? How, how should I pray? When called to Bible reading, you may ask, how much do we need to read? Where do I start? And the list could go on and on and on of the ways in which we want to to litigate the the, the things that we're called to do in such a way that we can have our mind around them and understand exactly what is required so that when we do it, we can say we've done it. That's the way we all operate. We are not doers. We are something like debaters. You and I are Him. We are lawyers. And so when we look at Him, we are looking, as it were, in a mirror. And it is to such a one One like you and I, a lawyer who would seek to justify himself when confronted with his own guilt, that Jesus speaks the parable here. And that brings us to our second point. We've seen the one to whom he speaks, and now let's look at what he speaks to us. And what's interesting is, at this point, Jesus turns back from the the tit-for-tat debate over the law and the quoting of Scripture and him quoting Scripture and asking of questions He turns away from that to do something completely different. The lawyer would know him by the law, and now Jesus will have the lawyer know the law by him. He doesn't quote another scripture. He opens his mouth in what's in other places called a dark saying. He voices a proverb or a parable. He tells a story. Instead of answering the question directly, 
He often does this too. You notice this as you read the Gospels. Jesus doesn't ever answer directly, it seems. He paints a picture for the man who asks, who is my neighbor? He doesn't say, well, let me define neighbor for you. He paints a picture of neighborliness for him. Not another law, but a law keeper. Not a definition, but a man to emulate is set before his eyes. The story opens, of course, with the half-dead man, but by all accounts, the the focus of this parable is not the man lying in the ditch. Not at all. It is the good Samaritan that is set before us. And so it's as if Jesus is saying to the self-justifying lawyer, He's saying to you and I, look at the Samaritan. Stop arguing over the law and and trying to define everything and just, just be still and open your eyes and look at Him. Look at him, and looking, learn. Notice first what he is not, the Samaritan. He is not a Levite or a priest. And they, they are described as those who just intentionally pass by the man by the side of the road. He's therefore, this man, this one that he wants us to look at, he is not the one. Emphatically not the one you would expect to be the good man. He is an outsider, a Samaritan to the lawyer. He's one who has forsaken the law or ignores it. You don't come to the Samaritan for answers about the refined questions concerning the law of Moses. That's not where you go. And Jesus, nevertheless, sends us there to gaze on Him. Look at Him. But not because of His heredity, His station, His status, or His office. Don't even look at Him and see whether He's a Samaritan or a Jew. None of that counts, you see. It's to apply it to ourselves. It's not about our church membership or our theological acumen, all all things that are good in 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 their way, but it is important. The first thing that's important is not those things. It's not who we are definitionally. It's not that we're hearers, but that we are doers of the law. It is, as Paul writes, the thing that counts is faith working through love. Look at this Samaritan and see by His actions what Jesus wants to teach us. His actions as well as His person are described differently to us than the actions of those other two men, the priest and the Levite. First of all, it says that they came upon the man by chance, the Levite and the priest by chance. And then verse 32, the Levite, it says likewise in the same way. Theirs, you see, is painted for us as something accidental. Fate, luck, Whereas the Samaritan is described in such a way that it's his seems not accidental, but to bear the signs of purpose. But a purpose not his own. Verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was lying. Where he was. His journey brings him to that spot. He doesn't create the deed. He didn't wake up as one going out to go find the deed. He simply walks into it. Or we might say that the deed was prepared beforehand so that he might walk in it. And it seems he has all that he needs as well to accomplish the deed. Notice verse 34. He has all these things on hand that are necessary to do the work that is set before him. Oil. Wine. He has his own animal to carry the man. Perhaps he's too big for him to carry himself by his own strength. And then verse 35. He has two coins in his pocket that he could spend. Two denarii. The work, you see, and the means to accomplish the work are all there at His disposal. They're all provided for Him. And further, the desire 
in his heart is there as well. He has all the outward means, and importantly, he has the inward motivation. Look at that Samaritan. It tells us that. He cares for the man in need, it says. At the end of verse 33, what do we read? But that he was moved with compassion. The other two, we don't even hear anything about their state, the state of their heart or their desire. Nothing is said but what they do. They, they make a purposed, intentional effort to turn aside and go away from the man. Whereas this one, compelled by his insides, by his own affections, is drawn out of where, the direction he was going to stop and go and help the man. He's compelled and so moved. Notice that he provides with the things that he's been given to provide, both for his present needs and his future needs. He uses the means at hand to care for the most pressing concerns. He's bleeding on the side of the road. What does he need? Well, you need to stop the bleeding. You need to heal and clean the wounds. And he has the things for that. He presses the wounds. He dresses them with oil and with wine. He carries him to an inn. And then carrying him to an inn where it's clean and he can rest out of the elements, he stays with him overnight, it seems. In verse 34, it says he was there with him to care for him. And then he promises to care for him beyond the present and into his future needs. Verse 35, the next day, again, implying that he slept in the, in the room and cared for him overnight, making sure he was okay. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I will do it. And there's something there of the personal touch of all of this work. It's not done distantly. He doesn't pay someone else to do it. He himself is the one that goes to the man. He is the one that takes out the oil and the wine and applies it to his wounds. He touches the man. The Samaritan. Personal touch. Not only giving his goods, but he gives his own self. He gives his time. He steps aside. He, he stays with him. He is with the man where he is for the night and promises further that he will come back. I will come back. He who touched the wounded man will not leave him to others permanently. No. He wants to find out how he is and what's going on with him. He promises to see to his needs personally again. And at his coming, he says he'll bring everything he needs to pay for all that was necessary while he's gone. See, this is the one Jesus calls us to look at. The Samaritan, one who in the language of verse 46 proves to be a true neighbor. He does so not just in words, but in deeds. His actions speak. My father would always tell me, son, your actions speak louder than your words. That was one of those words that my dad said so many times I ignored it when it came. But there is deep and true wisdom there. Your actions, they speak. The lawyer himself must confess, having seen this Samaritan put before his eyes, that he is the one who showed mercy. He is the one who showed mercy. Literally, it says, he did it. He did mercy. He worked out the compassion that was in his heart. And it can only be summarized in that one word, mercy. He was merciful. This is, you see, the high and the holy call of our Lord to all self-justifying lawyers like you and me. Mercy. Go work mercy. 
or as the text has it, Jesus said to him, you go, you, and do likewise. Not a definition of a neighbor, but a man. A man who works mercy. Go and be like him, he says. You see, it's, it's interesting. It's law and gospel in one word. It's law and gospel in, in one word. As law, it doubles down on the law that the, the, the lawyer himself quoted. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus shows us a man who is so neighborly that the, the depth and the height and the breadth of such neighborliness is beyond our capacity. We would never have thought that that was what was required of us. And yet that is what he shows us. As one commentator puts it, if it is acted on as if it, the way Jesus has just described neighborliness, is acted on by this lawyer, he will soon find out that all his selfish lack of love is all that all he has is a selfish lack of love, and thus he will be made ready to see what the prophets and the kings longed to see. You see, him trying to go and do what's set before him, this high holy call, will only show him that he does not have the capacity to do it. He cannot be good like that good Samaritan. It requires more than mowing grass and even running into a house where someone is trapped in a burning building. And so it doubles down the law before us, but as gospel, it meets us as well, the need that we feel pointing us to another. Do you see him? I wonder if you see him in the Samaritan. He's far better than you, isn't he? He is one who is other than you, not only by nature, but by, by deed, his actions. He embodies, as another commentator says it, the compassion and covenant faithfulness of God. Our Lord, under the veil of a Samaritan man, He walks before you as one who fulfills the law. He loves you, His neighbor. He does not pass you by, but He stops and He cares for you. He heals your wounds. He picks you up and He carries you. And he does all this presently with a promise to come back and give you all that you need when he returns. He does it all personally. Personally. Drawing near. Touching. Face to face. And he bids you, look. Look. Not at him through the law, but look at the law through him. He bids you, by his life and by his command, to love one another Yes, as I, he says, has lo have loved you. Who is your neighbor? That's the question. And I think we can say, he is. Him. Love him. And loving him, learn to be neighborly as he was neighborly. And he is neighborly. And he will be neighborly. And so find that you walk as he walked. A man fulfilling the law. As Paul once said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for the pattern that is set before us and fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets, that we, O Lord, have a trail blazed before us, that we, O God, might walk with him in the newness of life. We pray that you would empower us to this end to go and be lovers of neighbors as your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, once and still loves us.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.